you are listening to another episode of H-Hour. You can get H-Hour merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com and you can become a patron of H-Hour at patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. We are hit record just as the tractor cutting the grass drives by. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think people will hear it. I don't think hear it. Aaron, welcome, mate. Welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. Thanks yeah. for having me on. I know uh, you are an incredibly busy individual, but we managed to line it up, so I, v- I appreciate it very much. Um, and the subject matter of this podcast, like, was completely new to me or known to me until we met a couple yeah. months back uh, and had a brew. Um, but coincidentally, I said coincidentally, I, I put a post on social media last night, on Instagram last night, and said, interviewed a guy this week, and I like, outlined, like, some of the some some of it, you yeah. Know, coma, I see it, uh, intensive care psychosis. Yeah. Um. I said, like, can you like can you imagine being in this situation? And then one of my an ex reg block actually popped up in the comments. I knew he was really sick of the issue. I don't know what it was. I saw a post. I don't know him super well. We've met we've met a couple of times in Arnhem. Funny enough, we were just talking yeah. about Arnhem off there, and uh, he said, yeah, I experienced a very similar thing or the same thing, the same condition early this year i was like fucking hell really because it's such it's it's so rare is it not so i don't know to what extent he did experience you it. you have but got sh- to hook us up yeah i will do i will do yeah, yeah I will definitely do. yeah i will do um so mate right you got the intensive care psychosis but before we go on to that aaron how let like how did you end up in that situation in the first place how did you end up in a coma in the first place or severely sick Go right. From, start from wherever you want to start off to get this story, get this out there. Okay. As you know, like you, ex-military, uh, three active servitors back in the day, not a scratch or not a you know significant scratch. Uh, gardening in Romford, I scratched the back of my hand. And when I say I scratched the back of my hand, I mean it was literally like a pinprick. And we were sat there. In the garden. You're you out know. now. You're out in the military now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sat there feeling flush of success. All alpha male. Been chopping stuff up in the garden. <laughs> and um, I had this kind of little, you know, as you do, a little, you know, when you you scratch yourself, it gets a little bit red or something like that. And I'm, I'm having a little bit of a scratch of it as blokes like to do. And my girlfriend, now wife at the time, is like, yeah, leave that alone. You know, you'll make it sore. And... Um, I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night wanting to pee, switched the bathroom light on and I looked down and my right arm was twice the size of what it should be. The whole arm? Kind of from the the elbow down. And I woke my wife up and we sort of like, right, okay, we're going to hospital tomorrow. Lie down. Was it discoloured? Was there any discoloration? No. Just, just inflamed? Yeah. Massive? No pain. No really? Pain. No pain. And I was like, Okay, lie down, and then immediately sat back and go. No, let's get down to the hospital. And we went, and um, we sat in intensive care, and you know they weren't taking it terribly seriously. What? So you went straight into intensive care. No, no, sorry, uh, misspoke. Uh, went straight to A and E. A and E, A and E, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we went to A and E, and you know nothing really was 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 happening. Um, and then I started to go downhill, kind of medically. You know, I started to feel sick. My arms started to ache. Swelling was getting worse. It started getting really red. Um, How long have you been in there for at this point? The, you know, God, you know, if I'm honest, I don't even remember. 
I think probably a couple of hours. It's A and E, you know, in a, you know late, late early early hours. Um, eventually, we went. We got taken through uh, to triage. And um, I remember, you know, they were kind of in and out, and oh yeah, we'll take your orbs, yada yada yada. Uh, no one taking anything seriously, and then I just remember this whoosh of pain going down my arm, and it was I, I liken it to somebody pumping molten lead through my bloodstream. I didn't know it was humanly possible. I mean, I've broken pretty much every bone in my body, not in one sitting. I'm not that, you know. Um, in various in various uh, situations, uh, and I didn't know it was humanly possible to feel this level of pain. It was un fucking believable. Out of the blue, yeah, and it just came down my arm, and the sweat just started pouring off. While you're in sales, sat in A and E waiting, well, I was sat, you know, in triage waiting to go through, um, and you know, they said, "Oh, we'll, we'll give you some." They came in and said, oh, we'll, "We'll give you some codeine." Look at that! Bring the hard drugs on. And eventually gave me some Oromorph, which is liquid morphine, and that eased it for a a few moments. And again, you know, they they didn't seem to be terribly uh, worried about the situation, which was making me and my wife and Karen, my now wife, even more worried because they didn't seem to take this seriously. And I knew this was a serious thing. Um, and then um, my wife, Karen said to me, "Should you pretend to faint? They'll start taking you seriously." <laughs> And I'm like, I'm not doing that. And then literally moments later, I just, my eyes rolled back to white. I just went rigid, teeth clenched to the point I found out I'd broken one of my teeth. And I just started violently convulsing. I mean, it was like something from a horror film, apparently. I was just violently convulsing on the bed. Just like somebody, if you've ever seen someone have an epileptic fit, it was like that. And this is from the pain, or just, or, or. Well, what I didn't know until later, what had happened is the scratch in the garden, a bacteria called necrotizing fasciitis had got in there, which is the flesh-eating superbug. And what it does is it breaks down all the tissue, and as it breaks down the tissue, that releases loads of basically toxins. So I had sepsis. Necrotizing fasci- fasciitis. fasciitis sounds horrendous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, oh it's it's alternative name, the flesh-eating superbug, isn't that? <laughs> they're, they're not trying to sugarcoat this one, are they, really? Um, Was it the Daily Mail giving it that, that name? Chat? Very probably. But they got it right probably. in this instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not hubris. <laughs> it really fucking is. Anyway, I started convulsing. Um, and then a little bit more action started to happen. And, you know, I was taken down and they were looking at an, an amazing... Um, team was kind of assembled but i was a little bit i was oblivious to this because i kept drifting in and out of consciousness because of the and this was because of the pain you know the pain would get that bad my brain would basically say what right were you, what were you thinking you've had enough when you were conscious what were you thinking at this point early on before make, you knew what it was make the fucking pain stop <laughs> it was just unbelievable and you know i i knew i, knew I was gravely ill all over your body or no, just no, in just, the arm? not just my arm and my arm at this point was like the size of my thigh like the skin was stretching I, I kind of drifted in and out of consciousness, loses consciousness, um, and a an amazing um, orthopedic surgeon came over and um, they said we want to do um, we want to do an ultrasound. They couldn't find a porter, so my wife basically grabbed the trolley, grabbed the nurse, and dragged me down to uh, um, to, uh, to ultrasound. 
Did they have any idea what it was at this point? Um, Did they know about the cut in your hand? Yeah, they'd seen that. But I mean, it was so tiny. I mean, it was literally a pinprick. Yeah. And it was camouflaged by the fact that my whole arm at this point was like red and, you know, burning up. Uh, they took a scan, they took me back, um, and one of the surgeon, uh, one of the surgeons who was on duty at the time, um, he just, um, he ran a scalpel down my forearm. No, no prep, no anesthetic, anything like that. Just run a blade. And it looked like it just billowed out. It. it looked like red sand just came pouring out. And the stench, I mean, I wasn't bothered about it because I was busy dying. Karen wasn't bothered about it because she was busy watching me die. But like the doctors and nurses around were sort of like, <coughs> trying not to bring up their lunch. And then... So so how come... So he, he, it's basically were, rotting the, flesh. But he was, he was panicking about you piling in you dying which is why he made a decision to do that off the yeah cut and cut your yeah arm. i think i think he, he, he suspected and he said the words necrotizing fasciitis and my wife i think it's a wife she's now Karen kind of looked at me and said they said necrotizing fasciitis and i looked at her and i said i am really ill aren't i <laughs> and um i lost consciousness again and i kind of came around by, by the time i came around I was just surrounded by people. There was like two doctors on each limb and they were all desperately trying to get a line into me because if they didn't get antibiotics in me, immediately I was di- I was dead. You know, I'd have gone too far. When you say it was like sand cut your arm, it was like thick, you mean thick, thick, thick liquid out of where you cut it? It just looked like, like if you got sand and you know, you know, you wet sand, that's just what it kind of looked like. I mean, maybe my eyes were a bit blurry through, yeah. you know. But, but um, and I remember bits and pieces at this point. I remember um, there was a, a, a consultant and she was trying to, because all my veins at this point are now collapsed. There's one of the surgeons and she was up my feet and they were trying to get a line in. They actually used a pediatric cannula, you know, what they use for babies. And I just heard her, we've got a line, we've got a line. Um, and they couldn't give me any more medical painkillers because the priority was the um, um, antibiotics. If it's a choice between the antibiotics or the painkillers, well, I can, you, can, you, the pain is not going to kill you. The, you know, the toxins are, and I later found out that if I'd have got there any twenty minutes later, that I'd have been too far gone. And then, Christ Almighty! Then I, you know, at some point, I just remember somebody saying, "Crash theaters, crash theaters," um, and then everything kind of went dark, and that's when, <coughs> excuse me, my my journey began. <laughs> Flashed a bang, what, three hours? Uh, Well, yeah, from in, from going into an A&E, probably. If you'd gone to sleep at home, and you wouldn't have woken up. Yeah, I always say thank God for my 70-year-old bladder. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been able to sleep through the night without you getting up for a pee. Up. I would, no, I, yeah, without without a doubt, that wouldn't have happened. I would not have woken up. Because this bacteria would have basically just, because what it does is it shuts everything down so it can, you know, do its thing. How rare is this bacteria? Um... I always say it's everywhere, but very rare. So the analogy I give is, if you imagine you took a handful of glitter, you know, like kids decorate cards with. So you take a handful of like multicolored glitter, you put it in your hand and you go in your garden on a windy day and you throw it in the air. You would not be able to find a grain of that, would you? It would be there, but it'd be very, very difficult to find. 
So necrotizing fasciitis is a little bit like that. It's kind of everywhere, but it's very, very rare, thankfully. And then, and then you have to go into the bloodstream. Yeah, which is, again, another difficult thing to rarity. do. Yeah, so just happened that, you know, one of the thorns that I'd been cutting back or whatever it was, had it on, cut my hand, that stuck into my hand, and, you know, that was the entry point. And what's the... What it, so is it only antibiotics can cure it? This isn't like a magic antidote type of thing. It's pump pump the antibiotics and hopefully they take work quick. Because it got in your arm, right? And then mm. and then what's this mechanism there? It it basically gradually infects the rest of the body. Is no, what it does, does what it does is it, it will break down the the the, the necrotizing fasciitis. Oh, is that scar on your arm from where they yeah, cut your arm? Yeah, this, this is one of Jesus. kind of six operations. If I don't know whether the camera will pick it up, but it kind of goes from there. Oh, the you can see that, yeah, you can see that. Can't and it yeah. goes. They very kindly went through, went between my tattoo. That's <laughs> that's actually Latin for that which is not kill you can only make you stronger. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, scars there, and then this starts here, and it goes all the way, kind of. Yeah, you can see it on the camera. Yeah, yeah oh my it God. goes. So that's one of six operations. So first of all, to save my life, um, and then to save my arm. Um, so theaters get so theater, crash theater. Yeah, and that's when my journey began. Dark. Yeah, yeah. So uh, everything. Went... So you out? You're unconscious then. Um, define unconscious. You you look at somebody who's in a coma, and you know, you know, you, you imagine that they're kind of either. I, I, every, I'm sure most people have looked at somebody who's in a coma. I thought, I wonder what they're experiencing. Is it like being asleep, but really, really deep sleep? Well, you hear the horror stories of people being in a coma, but they're not in a coma, and they can hear you talking to them, uh, or people who are, they, they, their eyes are open, but they appear to be like brain dead or whatever. Yeah. But they can hear and they can see you, they can't, they've got no control of themselves. There is something conscious there, and they're able to understand the outside world, or there's something going on internally and they're awake inside. Yeah, so right? it's kind of both, I think. It's everybody's horror story that they're in that position. Yeah. Well, what happens with intensive care psychosis, and it's surprisingly common, people, you know, because I got, you know, kind of, um, when I found out that it was, so kind of jumping forward a few steps, when I came out of my coma and um, and the horrendous experience that was, so I, I, I'd say I was in my coma for five Earth days but I was locked in my brain for four weeks having the most horrendous and vivid hallucinations that lasted for days in my head because time warps. You know, time is a construct our brain makes up anyway. You know, if you stood waiting for, for a bus for 10 minutes and you thought, in the rain, you thought, Jesus Christ, that's a long 10 minutes, right? But then you bump into one of your mates you've not seen in ages and you stood at the bar having a drink and you're going, Jesus Christ, it's 11 o'clock already. Where's time gone? So time is something our brain makes up in relation to our, you know, our experience. So my brain made up time and warped it into four weeks. But in answer to the question, when I came out of the coma and um, I realized that all the doctors and nurses were planning on carrying out experiments on me, I was absolutely 100% convinced that that was why I was there. And it oh, wasn't. It wasn't helped say by. That, say that. Say that again. Well, they were all planning on carrying out medical experiments on me. I knew that for a fact. Yeah, yeah. I was. On, I was onto them. Yeah. When you and came it out wasn't. Of yeah. So when I was in intensive care. Yeah. Yeah. Intensive care psychosis doesn't stop when you come out. When you come round, it carries on. 
Right. Okay, so... So you five days in the coma, then came out of the coma, but you're still in intensive care psychosis, but conscious. Yeah. And you thought they were out to get you. No, I knew they were out to get me. I knew that for a fact. And it wasn't helped by the fact that this is a really rare condition, right? They've had five cases at the hospital. No, four cases in five years. All of them have died. So doctors were obviously curious about this and nurses. So I'm in like this bay and I'm lying there and I'm looking up and I could see doctors kind of walking past and sort of stopping and then speaking to the doctor next to them. And obviously I couldn't hear because they're between glass. And they're going, oh, that's that guy who's had a, <laughs> that's that guy who's had necrosizing fasciitis and seems to be seems to be going to survive. Well, I was going, yeah, they're definitely planning the experiments on me right now. Yeah, swap me arms and legs over. That that could be the kind of shit that they were <laughs> doing. But what, yeah, what led you to that thought? So come, come back to that, mate. Come back to the in the coma. Right. So I like, was. How do you? How does you? How were you tracking time so it appeared for four weeks when it was five days? What was going on in your brain? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, then. So when I was put out and I went into the, the operating theatre, um, you know, you, you said, you know, you mentioned like kind of about awarenesses of what people can hear when they're in a coma. You do have some awarenesses. Right, so when I was in the operating theatre, um, I could hear the machines going and um, I could hear the music that they were playing in the operating theatre. For those who've never, because I've worked in, in operating theatres, I used to work in medical sales, so I would basically go into an operating theatre as tech support for the surgeons, basically. And, you know, you, you see it on TV and it's all very, very quiet and scalpel, scalpel, forceps. It's not like that. Yeah, play. Uh, it's not like that at all. Um, you know, they've got the, you know, radio playing and you know everyone's kind of talking and you know what did you know it's, it's a working environment um, and I could hear some of this and the thing with while you're in the medically induced coma what is basically happening is your body is going through an experience in me extreme pain um, and my brain has now got to make sense of why this is happening to it but it has to do that with very, very limited information because you're hugely sedated um, a lot of the time. So you're still in pain when you're in the coma? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the um, the pain relief that I was given did not touch it. But they didn't know because you were in a coma? Yeah, yeah. What systems were you hooked up to? Everything. Everything. I, You know, I was ventilated. Really? Yeah. In intensive care, there was basically, um, you, you get one-to-one nursing. In intensive care, whether you're 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 awake work or not, so one nurse will be with you for twelve hours, and literally for the foot while I was unconscious, they had like kind of a bank of what you call drivers, which basically pump medication into you, right? And it was kind of four foot high, drawers of drivers all lined going into my carotid artery, you know, going directly into my bloodstream, and basically the nurse would come along, start at the top, replace them work the way to the bottom and then start again at the top the and then repl- and, and, and go and it would just kind of pain relief um huge amounts of intravenous um, um antibiotics uh, just you know all, all the you know the, the stuff that you need to have but because the world that i was kind of plunged into was so terrifying my physical body was, I mean, I, I can go into some details about kind of the, the worlds I, I visited, yeah. and if you like, but um, they were so terrifying um, that I was, 
the, the medication that they said that they would use to sedate somebody of my my weight, my BMI, is ten units just for ease of maths. Okay, in fact, it's not ease of maths; it was ten units. They were giving me thirty-two, and I still had to be physically restrained while you were in the coma. while I was in the coma. So the idea that I was kind of lying there very peacefully, not me. I was fighting the whole really? the whole way. Yeah. What was going on in your mind? Um. So I visited. It, basically, I would I would have kind of like experiences that would last for anything from a couple of days to a number of days, and uh, the majority of them were kind of informed by my kind of military experience. So like Bosnia and Belfast, and you know you my time Coastal Guards. Yeah. Uh, my first tour. I was uh, part of a, a unit which was kind of involved with surveillance and kind of, te- you know, surveillance work, uh, close observation platoon. So, you know, we'd spend a lot of time kind of uh, tracking terrorists, um, putting in OPs. You know, we might be in an OP for three weeks at a time, you know, down in South Armagh, which back in the day we used to call bandit country. So I was back there. Um, in your head? Yeah. In your head you go through this? But, yeah, but, they, you know, the, the volume had been turned up and the, the, the lights had been turned so it was kind of, it was a warped version of a lot of that. So, so like a mix of reliving some past experience, but also those experiences were on steroids and like. Yeah. So, I, so one of the experiences I had, I was, um, I was in Belfast, but I'd been separated, and this didn't happen. You know, I'd been separated, and I could hear I was kind of crouching behind a wall in one of the streets in, in Belfast that I knew very well, and I was kind of hiding there, and I could hear the crowds trying to find me and dude the thing that is difficult to get across is the how vivid and how real it was right it was as real as you're sat there did you know it was that real it wasn't real you thought it you thought each of these little experiences were 100% real to me I was in that moment I had no I had no memory of my previous life Really? And my own experiences as Aaron as a human being, I was in that moment, and those moments lasted for you know, for for days on end. Some of them. And this is your brain trying to cope with and make sense of all this pain you're going through. So, am I right? And yeah. manifesting situations to make it logical that you would experience it. So, a, a really good example. A really good example is um, I've got a, an older and a younger brother. Okay, and uh, they were basically told, you need to come down. And my older brother, you know, spoke to the doctor and said, you know, do I need to get down now? Because they didn't, they didn't know how bad I was, obviously. They just received a phone call. And the surgeon sort of went quiet and said, if it was my brother, I would definitely come down right now. In other words, you're probably coming down to say goodbye. So when they, when my younger brother, my, my younger brother Travis, my older brother Russell, when they came to visit me, they lowered my sedation, so I was a little. I had some awarenesses, so I was obviously aware that they were there, right? But I was aware that they were there and looking terrified and in pain, because they're looking at me thinking that I'm, I'm going to die. So my brain says, "Right, okay, we need to explain this." Your eyes are open; you can see it. No, I, 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 oh, you I, I awarenesses, yeah, yeah, awarenesses. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, they would have been talking and things like that. And yeah. I would have, so my brain says, okay, right, you need to explain what's going on. Are your younger brother and older brother are, you know, are terrified and in pain? 
Right, got it. What we'll do is we will put you on a planet, and we will get you, and we will float you about 20 feet off the ground, and underneath you were my two brothers, okay? Naked. I mean, that's creepy enough as it is, isn't it? Um, but then there were copies of them. So there were like 200 copies of my older and my younger brother 20 feet below me, okay? And Lying down, down yeah. naked. Yeah. It's bad enough, isn't it? Uh, and then their arms and their legs will be pulled. Is it, you know, like kind of, the, you see it on the films and it's kind of oh, it's pulled apart by, yeah. by horses. Oh, it was kind of like that. So the shoulder joints would be dislocated and the muscles would tear away and their arms would be pulled off and the hips would dislocate and the legs would be torn off. And then the stomachs would split open and their intestines would kind of spill out. And they were looking at me screaming as this is going on. And then the heads were kind of stretched back. I was sinews of the neck would pull apart. The head would be torn off. There'd be a little puff of smoke and they'd vanish. And then a puff of smoke that reappear fully assembled. So I'm watching this hundreds and hundreds of times. And I was there floating for four days watching this, watching it get light, watching it get dark. I'd f the My perception of time was as it is right now. And yeah, I spent four days doing that. Yeah. And it's not that uncommon. Intensive care psychosis is not that and without getting kind of too technical, intensive care delirium and intensive care psychosis, which is slightly you know, which are there's a nuance between them, and that's kind of the subject of my second book, which I'm I'm hoping to spend a bit more time on. But and that's why I want to speak to your friend, because I'm using other people's stories in that. So about Eight, 60 to 80% of people who are in a medically induced coma will experience some level of ITU delirium or ITU psychosis to some degree. Now, obviously, I had, you know, acute. I had very acute. And, you know, when I was in intensive care and I, you know, when I was, was regained consciousness, and I realized that all the doctors and nurses were planning on killing me and carrying out experiments on me. And then nobody had diagnosed it. Nobody until one night. And it was the most junior nurse. The most junior nurse. Um, he had literally just qualified. And this was his first job. And he wrote on my notes. Um, um, patient experiencing uh, ICU delirium. And um, Karen was reading my notes every day. Um, yeah, she wasn't. You know, she was just amazing through the, the whole thing. Um, yeah, to the point where when I was actually put on a, a ward, she banned anybody from coming into my room because I was so medically unstable. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's another story. Well, I'll, I'll get back to that. Um, so yeah, she and she said, you know, intensive care psychosis. So we started doing some research, and then I found out that intensive care psychosis was a thing. It's a condition. And kind of going back to you know we we talked earlier before, before we went on air about kind of life threatening situations and how you deal with it. <laughs> Oh, the icebreaker, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I thought, right, well, if it's a thing, I can beat it. Because I've beaten worse in my life. I've done harder stuff. Sniper training, cop selection, the army. I've done tougher stuff than this. I can beat this. So that's what my brain went into in a um, fight back mode. 
and I, you know, I, it wasn't an easy journey. Um, oh, this is after you come out of the coma and you realise, okay, yeah. Yeah, and then you know when I kind of uh, when I got um, back to some level of health and I thought I'm going to going to write a book on this because people need to understand what this is. And it, originally, the book was designed as a you know kind of for people. For people who'd had this experience or had family, but then the book turned into something, I won't say different, it's still useful for them, but it, it, it's a very different thing. The book is kind of um, um, a book of kind of hope and how kind of the human, um, the human experience and, you know, the triumph over adversity. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot more to it than it being kind of any sort of medical you know, novella or, you know, no, wrong word, uh, a, a medical kind of textbook or anything like that. So I became involved with different support groups. And there's people, you know, I've, I've spoken to online um, and through Zoom who were in a coma 25 years ago and are still, you know, can't leave the house because they're so emotionally damaged from what they went through. Bringing you the show today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group are a hugely experienced defense and security company who develop solutions for post-conflict zones and a complex world. They have been developing and delivering highly impactful technical solutions since 1982 through the deployment of innovative technologies, techniques, services, and people. They've been saving lives and protecting people and assets against the global threat of explosive ordnance for decades. Their equipment and their products and their technologies are developed by operators, for operators. They've got a huge proportion of their workforce who are ex-military, and they are massive proponents of the ex-military value within the industry. They answer the needs of states, NGOs, international or regional institutions, and private corporations. The Aardvark Group first became known to myself and to H.O.A. very early on, when I was introduced to the CEO, David St. John Clare, who at that time was putting in significant personal effort to raise money for military charities at the height of the Afghan campaign. The Aardvark Group commits just as much energy as David within the company to support the military community, and this has been demonstrated through the Armed Forces Employee Recognition Scheme Awards. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group at aardvark.group and you can follow them on social media. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, and they're on Facebook. Simply search for The Aardvark Group and you will find them. I strongly suggest you do, and they will certainly appreciate the follow and the engagement from HOA fans. Aardvark.group when you, <coughs> when, you when you come out the coma and you were conscious again, how did, how did you, you, your brain start reconciling what you'd experienced when you were under? And... And also, you mentioned about being medically unstable. How how was the like awake element of psychosis manifesting itself? Because um, when you come, I, I can't imagine it's like a oh, you woke up all of a sudden you're awake and you think what the, what have I been for four weeks? What do you mean it's only been five days? It's gone. Yeah, because because I remember like one of the um, when I was first brought round and. Karen was there and she's mouthing to me. She's saying, "You've been out for five days. You've been out for five days, whatever it was." And, and, and it's before I was brought around fully. I think it was four at the time. And 
I I was still intubated, so I couldn't speak. And I was like, I'm mouthing to her, apparently, four days. And I looked really shocked. And she thought, I thought, oh, he's lost four days. She, But I was really saying, is that all? Because <laughs> I've been down here for four weeks, dude. It's not cool. Even though you think I've only been out for five. You know, it was four weeks, definitely. Jesus. And then people ask me, you know, like you, like you did, you know, how can I so sure it's four weeks? I know it's four weeks. You, you know what a month feels like, right? Yeah. 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 That's what I knew a month felt like. It's just I was spending mine in, you know, alternative universes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you have that, that slowdown in time or the, the alternative sort of perception of mm. the passage of time. You get similar but not bad, not dark like that um, experiences people do, I've heard. On on like psyched on some psychedelic drugs, so I know that um, you know people will take acid, for example. I've heard this is the case, and allegedly, we'll, allegedly, and we'll listen to a you know we'll go down the rabbit hole while they listen to a, a, a track, a music track, and yeah. then the track will finish. Allegedly, this has happened, and they will think they've just lived a whole different lifetime in the space of that track. I can't believe that track was only four minutes long when you've been under the influence. It's like a drug. And I think when we met, we spoke about DM, uh, DMT, didn't we? Yeah. Dimethyltryptamine, the body produces. Yeah. Which the body produces. And they think that, they think that drug, uh, that chemical drug, yeah. that chemical is responsible for the life flashing before your eyes that some people get when they are having a near-death experience. Which, and I think we, we mentioned it, is there, when we were talking about it when we first met, mm. is, did that? Do you know if anything like that played a part in these hallucinations? I, I think, I think absolutely, it will have done. Because you were um, literally, you're basically near death experience for days in the real world, four yeah. weeks, four weeks in the alternative real world in your mind. Yeah. So right. my body would, you know, especially in the, you know, the the, the initial parts where I it was cushioning me for expiry, um, it would have been producing that. Um, so that would have had some impacts um, on it, without doubt. Um, but you know, also there was a you know a huge amount of the chemicals that have been pumped into my body. There's also extreme exhaustion because um, mm. people think that when you're in a coma, you're basically asleep. You're you're not. You know, if you measure somebody's brainwaves when they're in a coma in comparison with somebody who's awake, the brainwaves are exactly the same. So your brain is getting no rest. So if you're in a coma for five days, basically you've been awake for five days. Wow, I didn't know that. So, you know, there's there's also the element of, you know, extreme fatigue um, that, that your body's experiencing. There's the unfamiliar, the unfamiliarity with the environment, uh, the fact that, you know, in intensive care, it's a 24-7 program. You know, there's no there's no day and night, really. You know, you've got, you know, although the, the lights are dimmed, um, and people speak a little bit quieter. The routine that the nurses follow in a in a night shift is pretty much the same as they would follow in a in a day shift. Especially with somebody like me who you know didn't wasn't fed, wasn't taken to the toilet or anything like that. Um, you know, I was cannulated. So, how long did you say intubated for when you came round? When you become conscious, did they have to? They took it out. It was um, they, they they wanted to take the, uh, take the ventilator out um, immediately because it was a case of right um, we're going to take the ventilator ventilator out and either he's going to start breathing or he's not and if he doesn't we're going to have to reintubate him and that's probably going to be it because if I don't start breathing on my own 
because I was that medically ill and medically unstable that I would have gone back into a coma and they probably wouldn't have been able to bring me out of it. So um, I had my older brother there, Russell, and Karen was there. And I remember just sinking in it. You know, the nearest thing, the nearest kind of thing that's analogous to it is I remember it was like I was going under mud and there was just kind of my mouth just above the mud and I could just go and I was just taking gasps and I could hear in the distance my brother going, breathe, breathe, Aaron, breathe. And he's slapping me around the face. And the doctors and nurses just kind of stood and watched because either I'm going to start breathing or I'm fucking not. And if Holy I don't, shit. then I'm I'm probably not going to come around from this. And Were yeah. you aware of this happening? I, for me, I was basically, it was almost like there was a line and I was slipping underneath it and that underneath was oblivion. It was just black and it's I was, go, and I, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and then I just heard this, you know, my brother's voice in the distance and he was slapping me, encouraging me to breathe. And, I, you know, I started taking some gasps and I, you know, I started breathing on my own. Holy shit. What if he yeah. hadn't been there doing that? Uh, I'm sure Karen would have stepped in. <laughs> <laughs> if they'd, have, I'm, I'm convinced that if they'd have done it when there wasn't yeah. anyone there, I, I'm one hundred percent convinced I would have died because it was so seductive that inky blackness. It is so nice and so welcoming. Oh, really? So- yeah, and it isn't like a euphoric. Oh, I'm going to heaven. It's just when you are so exhausted. And you've had so much pain for so for so long, four weeks. Because when I was in these universes, the pain in my arm was with me all the whole time. And when you're so exhausted and you just want it to stop, man, you just want it to stop. And you feel yourself sinking and you just think, and you know that when you go under there, everything's going to be all right. Everything's gone. Because as you're that sinking is, That down, is so seductive. So as you're, yeah, I wonder what that is, because that's, you know, you're losing, you're losing connection to your physical self, aren't you? So that's basically as you're sinking down. The way I'm thinking about this, as you're sinking mm. down, your brain is like switching off, switching off the systems one by yeah. one. The DP go system off, system off. Don't yeah. have to worry about that pain anymore. Don't have to worry about this pain anymore. Down, down, down to nothing. Yeah. But, but then you are nothing if you let yourself go. Yeah. Holy shit! I've never really explained like that before. That is my that is, god. That is literally my what god. it was. My god. Yeah, because people talk about light, don't they? Yeah, like you're you know, being drawn to. I've done quite a lot of reading on the whole near-death experience thing. Yeah, I didn't get any of that. How does it compare to? How does it compare to stuff you've read? What you experienced? Then? Um, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to to, to slam people, slam people's kind of personal, uh, you know, um religious views or, or whatever that's that's not what i'm about um, but, at all but i can honest, but i'm going to <laughs> <laughs> but you're all wrong by the way no 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 um because i think i think a lot of times it gets put down to kind of religious experience you know they embrace the light and they, they see this and you know the, the family but when you look at it in a uh, in a in a global co- context i think people's near-death experiences nearly all map with their cultural um the cultural norms. So somebody has a near death experience in, you know, from a completely different culture to us, you know, then if, if, if that was 
us moving to, you know, the next level for, you know, just Sark and, you know, be fairly diplomatic, then then they would be uniform. They would have to be the same because we are all moving on that, you know, people from a different, don't go to a different heaven, presumably. So, yeah, I, um, or maybe I'm just an evil person. I was actually going to hell. We can't rule that out, can we? <laughs> There's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's probably what's going to happen. I used to joke that at least it'd be warm and I'll know people, but it wasn't warm. It was fucking dark and there was nobody there. <laughs> when you, when you, when they, when you were breathing for yourself and you were able to speak again, how did you explain to Karen, or to, to the people around you and the docks, what you'd been through? I remember when Karen had said to me, um, you've been out for four days at the time, I think it was, because I, I kind of went back under again. And I, um, and I went, I kind of mouthed, four days, four days. It won't work on I mouthed four days. <laughs> Um, and then I mouthed, I was terrified. That's all I could get out because my brain was just, whoa, trying to make sense of all of these little kind of little vignettes of experience that I'd gone through. It's trying to, you know, understand what they were to start off with. And then I've got the whole, you know, paranoia about, you know, everybody, you know, in the, the ITU. Um, and, um, yeah, um, it took me a while before I could, um, um, before I could kind of make sense of it. And the the way I started to try and make sense of it, I I tried writing it down. Well, I did did write it down. Um, and I just wanted to write it down because I just thought it might be cathartic. And it's eventually what became of the book. Well, and in the book I describe, you know, into some might say quite shocking details, some of the places that I, I visited. But there are, you know, to this day, as much peace as I've made of it. Now, if, if, and if, if I could turn, I would not not have had what happened to me because it changed me as a human being in so much as I have stared into the abyss of my, you know, my, my soul, if you have one. And, you know, I know myself better than most human beings ever will through what I've experienced. So I would not not have that happen again, but but I still there are still some experiences and some of that four weeks that even to this day I cannot talk about it. And, and when you if you read the book, some of them are fucking terrifying. You're like, what were those others like? But I still, you know, I've not talked about Karen, not talked to any of my therapists when I was out. I, I couldn't talk about. But you put them in the book. Uh, some, some of them. Of them yeah. There's some of them that I could not. Yeah. I still couldn't put in there, and I still haven't. Why do you? When you say you 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 know yourself better having done it, is that because the things you experienced when you were under, in a, in a similar way to you know what Nietzsche thinks about dreams, right? Is it mm. because in trying to understand why certain things were in your head when you were thinking, yeah, you know, what what populated that four weeks basically? Like, yeah. You, was it was it because you were trying to understand why those certain things present themselves? Maybe there was something in the real world that you weren't okay with or didn't understand. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's um, there's a, a bit that I talk about kind of some... like your brothers is a, is a crazy one. Yeah, you know, and you know that, and um, I, I think like like most soldiers, kind of stuff that we've seen and done, or seen and not done. I you know I carried about quite a lot of guilt for a lot of years. Um, and it made me, it made me face up to that, 
um, in horrific and very stark um, experience, uh, a, a very stark and frightening way, it made me kind of realise that I was carrying a lot of guilt around, which was then unpacked in, in kind of in therapy afterwards. Um, and that's that sounds, but I, I think it's, it's, it's multifaceted, really. I think because if you if to have gone through the pain that I did for a start off is um, teaches you a lot about yourself. To be able to go through an experience like that and come back from it teaches you a lot about yourself. But the actual experience in and of itself, you if to have. St- to, to know and to have seen, you know, what your brain is capable of doing to you. That is a, a is a learning experience that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. To know that, you know, basically how dark your brain actually can be if it's given the right circumstances the right opportunity and very probably the right medications to know what's deep down inside, what your brain is capable of manifesting. That's knowing yourself. Yeah, I see what you mean. I, I've spoken before about sort of nothing compared to what you went through, but in mental ill health in the past. Um, and... And one of the things I try to explain to people who are in the, in the situation at, the, at their worst, at their darkest, mm. which I'm thankful to say, close close friends has only been, as in close friends who still around, only been a couple of times I've had the opportunity to speak to, and they're really at the worst. It's like when you when you're in that position, really not well, yeah. not well, your mind will play tricks on you. I'm talking about depression and anxiety and, and oh, absolutely, your mind your mind will lie to you. It will you will. You will not interpret things the way you you should normally do. This is you know the classic of ever everything shit. Luck is never in your favour. Everything's always bad. Nothing ever goes your way. I mean that you know that's one of those attitudes. But that's sort of the the, the the start of it. And as you go down, you never see any right in anything, and you will you you, you ends up getting to the point where let's think about depression and why you know people get to suicide. And you think people choose suicide because their brain partly has told them that is the best option, and there's nothing else you can do. Yeah. There's nowhere else you can help yourself, which is utter lies, utter lies. But it's your brain telling you that, and your brain allows you to get that yeah. situation where it's where it's suicide, if, if and there's it, no other option. Which is how I sort of understood what you were saying <coughs> there. You if, know, if you imagine kind of your, your brain took you to another level in terms of darkness, which yeah. is just wild. wild. Well, if, if you think of like kind of the uh, the, 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 the the human experience. And the, so if, if what you're, to, you know, let's call that the, the narrative that you, your brain is having with yourself, because the, the stories we tell ourselves is not actually us, right? You know, I mean, that's a, a, a story that, because if that was the case, then who's telling that story? So then we're getting a bit of a circular argument. So our brain, you know, for, for good or bad can manifest a story. So if we think about somebody who's really healthy, you know, in, in not a bad place, you know, going to work every day, et cetera, et cetera, one end of the spectrum. And then if you, you know, uh, if you put my experience to the other end of the spectrum, right? So my brain was telling me and showing me this stuff. But if you think of somebody who's in who's in a normal, you know, you know, just walking down the street or going to work, and the the stories that the the the, the average person tells themselves, you know, the average person has a conversation with themselves, and 
the stuff that the average person says about you know if you if you spoke to one of your friends the way you speak to yourself in your own head your friends would fucking abandon you who is harder on on you as an individual nobody other than yourself i'm not working hard enough i'm not you know focused enough i'm too focused i'm working too hard you know we we do that on a on a daily basis and we do it even when you're healthy to such an extent that you know we wouldn't let we wouldn't tolerate anyone speaking to us the way we do ourselves because we know our own weaknesses we know uh, the chinks in our own armor and then if you roll that forward to you know what you're talking about there somebody with with mental health problems if you've if 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 you have got if you're experiencing mental mental health there is no one who knows you better than yourself there is no one that can find those weaknesses and knows where to stick that knife and twist it and the lies that it can tell you that than anybody could. So it's not a far leap from that to to understand that you know to, you know mental illness is a, a, a um, when people are suffering from depression and you know suicidal tendencies and things like that, they're buying into a narrative that their own brain is telling them. And mine was just an extreme version of that in glorious technicolor and high definition. Yeah. With the constant thanks to the flesh eating superbug, yeah, and sepsis, and, and you know, and I also had a soundtrack playing in my head <laughs> the full time. What do you mean? Oh, that's spoiler. I can't tell that story, man. That's that's like kind of the end Did of the you? book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. but let's out, just outline. Don't so music. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Oh my goodness me! So I had a. I'm not going to say what it was because no, no, that was no, you know fine, that's yeah, super spoiler, but. Um, I had a, a like a fifteen second, and if not even that, probably about a ten second clip of a really cheesy pop song and a real grating part of it, and it was played on loop no. for four weeks, solid, and it did not <laughs> stop. <laughs> now sometimes it would be just in the background, and sometimes it go and it was stretched, and sometimes it would go it'd be really fast, but it was there the whole time, and sometimes it was so loud man that it hurt my ears wild yeah wild. yeah and i hear that song now on the radio every now and then i'm like <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna tell you what it is it's in the book when you hear about what you're talking about there makes you it makes me think and understand exactly how you get crazy people walking around and they're, they're walking around they just but they, they're on a different planet they're mad i think they're like medically Clinically, yeah, bonkers. there's something wrong with them. You know, the the people run around and walk around. There used to be a guy when I was growing up, and um, walk around by the school I went to. Always have his fingers in his ears, walking always his fingers in his ears. He always looked anxious and always looked worried walking around. He, he wasn't well. He didn't didn't look yeah. well. He didn't look homeless, but he didn't look well off. He he, he looked sick the way he was walking about. You and you think about something like that. You think what there's something going on in their mind that is so far removed from what reality is. Mm. So far removed from what reality is, and yet either no one understands it, or no one is able to deal with it, or mm. yeah, you know, or or he isn't presenting himself to have it, have it dealt with, you know. And he again, you could like tie that in with the mental health. Like, you take it all forward to what you experienced, but for you, there was no getting away from it, mm. no getting away from it whatsoever. No. And so many different angles: music, the visuals, the pain, the external stuff that you could hear, yeah, going on. From the docks and your family. Oh my god. Oh my goodness me. How long did it take you to get over that when you when you came out? How long did the therapy go on for? 
Two different questions there. Two different questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, define getting over it. I mean, I, I, um, I've never gotten over it to the point that they're still there. And I, I think about it every day. Um, the, the experiences, and I call them experiences rather than nightmares or dreams, because they're as real. You know, an, an experience, a dream. You, 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 you see something happen. Right, and you and you're there, yeah. right? And experience, you feel it in the same way. I can feel this table, you know, and I can see you across the table, and you know, and that's an. This is an experience. I can experience, you know, my backside on the, on the chair, and I can feel the temperature in the room. They were experiences in exactly that way, but you know, frankly, fucking horrific. Um, so experiences are different, and they were they are burned into my memory. It's like they've not faded at all you know i can i can when did this happen what year this is five years ago yeah. still yeah they they, I, they are burning my i will net i will never forget them i'll never forget them um and i in a weird way i don't want to you know i wear my scar as like kind of a um almost like a medal for going to that dark place or a um when you're a souvenir, a souvenir uh, from going to that dark place, and it's made me, uh, you know, it, it, in answer to your question, I think to get myself certainly where I could, could I could work properly, um, you know, because I I I I'm supposed to take I don't know, they reckon that if you've been in intensive care, you should take a, a month off for every day, so I should have taken five months off. Oh no, I went back to work like days after coming out of hospital. That was a huge mistake i could not function really? yeah why did you make that decision um because i'm obstinate and um and yeah i i just and, and i you know it was a coping mechanism as well i think because if you don't then you've got to admit that you're really really ill and it's going to take longer to recover so yeah um i think probably to be fully functioning was probably about six to nine months really if i'm honest um yeah what was so what what was different about you? what's different about you now than what it was before obviously you've got a very different outlook on life yeah yeah i've got um i think i'm i'm a more understanding person i'm certainly more compassionate um i've got more time for people um why why did that change come about um because i understand the fragility uh, the human experience, I think, and I, I'm, you know, if somebody's going through something, then I, I, I find it easier. Although their experience is maybe completely different from what my experience was, I, I, I find it easier. I can connect with people who've got a problem. That doesn't mean to say that I'm any sort of saint, and you know, by by any stretch of imagination, any sort of therapist or I'm not. But if you know, um, if you catch me on the, the right day and you tell me you're going through problems, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite good at listening now, which I wasn't terribly good at before. Um. It's certainly not the the arrogance out of me that I've, I was often accused of before, um, and I'm much happier in. Uh, I'm much, and I think the big one, okay, the big one is I'm much more comfortable with myself. And I think when you've had your everything about you stripped down to to nothing, then it's you, you understand yourself. Um, a little bit better 
you understand, you know, when you've had all your, you know, kind of your, um, your certain certainties taken away from you, um, and you've been exposed of how kind of weak we are as as a creature. Um, that, in a bizarre way, is very liberating. I think I know myself better than most people because I I know what I and also I can I know what I can endure. I mean, and I always had a, an idea because I mean we've been you know similar experiences in the military and similar courses and things like that. So you know you you know you, you do something like sniper selection and you know I, I reference that in the book um, because I think all of those were things that probably um, are, are part of the, the reason why I, I came through the other side because I had a certain amount of you know um, resilience. resilience built into me that was kind of you know beaten into me from my time in the military. Now although the military informed some of my experiences in that, you know, they, they were basically, you know, they were twisted and reserved served to me as a, you know, an experience. I think the resilience that I built up in the military, I think kind of my ability to deal with hardship helped me get through it. Um, and you, um, when you come away from something like that, you know, you, 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 but man, if I can deal with that, then nothing I can't deal with. Mm. Are you you not fearful at all that you break a tourneo and do something like that to you again now that you've experienced it once so horrific? Because most people will never experience anything like you have inside their own mind. They just won't. They just won't. No, and I hope not. Ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Yeah, You know what I mean. I remember when I um I was on the no- I was on a normal on a um I was I was taken from intensive care and I was put on a a medical ward. Um, and this is when Karen just kind of went in an overdrive, man. I mean, when I was taken out on the normal ward, she's like, got all in, stood outside my room and said, right, unless you are actually doing, unless you're actually using, doing, if you're actually treating Aaron, you are not allowed in the room because my, my, you know, uh, my, um, I was so medically unstable, um, you know, my immune system was just, I had like some wooden white blood cell and that was in a, on, in crutches. Um, is that cause and she was terrified of me getting a hospital-borne infection because it would have killed me. Is it, is it the superbug that destroyed the white blood cells? Yeah. The immune system? Yeah, and, that, and, the, okay. and, the, and the sepsis. And the sepsis. So my, my, my immune system had obviously been fighting for, you know, however long I was in, I can't remember I was in intensive care. I, th- I think I probably stayed, you know, there's, there's the five days, but then there was probably about a week or two before I was transferred to a medical where I was st- stable enough. So my, they knew my immune system was totally shot at this point, just exhausted. So if I'd have caught an os- hospital-borne infection, and th- they were doing the rounds at the hospital at the time. Oh. Um, so she basically said no one's allowed in his room unless they're actually coming in to administer treatment. And like the nurses were like, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, who's going to clean his room? What about food? And she's like, well, I'm going to bring this food in every day. And she came in every morning. Fortunately, she's a teacher, and this happened, you know, the summer holidays. But she would come in at um, visiting time with like a bergen full of my meals for the day, <laughs> water for the day, so I didn't have to drink hospital water. And she'd come, you know, like a sherpa down the corridor. <laughs> and yeah, so I'd given all, you know, given all that, and um, we were, I'd. I'd I was starting to recover. It was like five days in or something. I've, I've been on the ward for five days. 
Um, and while she was there, the, the consultant came around and he was doing his rounds. And he just sort of, bear in mind that my arm was kind of like Frankenstein stitches because it still wasn't fully closed. It closed in most parts. And he sort of looked at my wrist and he said, what's that? I was, um, there was a little red kind of lump. And he kind of drew a line around it. And then he picked up his phone and went, yeah, we need him back in theatres. Oh, no. And her thought was, because I literally just proposed to her, by the way. After the coma? Yeah. I made a, I made a wedding ring out of my hospital wristband. I literally <laughs> just proposed to her. So she thought that, you know, that I'm, you know, I've just proposed to her and now I'm going to die. And I was thinking... I could be going back to the dark place. Rugby for Heroes brought you this show today. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. Since Joe's death, Rugby for Heroes have raised in excess of £125,000 for military charities. And they've been doing this year in, year out, by organising fundraising events themed around rugby beer and gin food live music and great people they regularly hold events and you can expect soon for a supper club to be added to their calendar their most recent event was a beer and gin festival held in old lemontonians rfc and lemonton spa the home of rugby the heroes and a club who recognise, as many others do, the huge impact that Rugby for Heroes has, not only on the military community, but also on the local community. You can keep up to date with what Rugby for Heroes are doing by following them on social media at Rugby Number 4 Heroes, Rugby for Heroes, and get onto their website, rugbyforheroes.org. I strongly suggest you do get to their events, and I will see you at the next event. I've been to every single one of their events since I, since I discovered Rugby for Heroes and, quite frankly, since they supported me through very difficult times. So I hold them very close to my heart and I'm very appreciative of their support, as are many other HR fans who have been touched in different ways by Rugby for Heroes over the years. Rugbyforheroes.org That's not cool. Oh my God. So when I was taken down there and, you know, I was sedated, I, I thought I could be going back to the dark place. But I went to another place which is, you know, different but equally terrifying. I basically tumbled into oblivion. Um, so what what was it on your wrist? It was the infection to come back. What, the super flesh-eating superbook? Yeah, so that's wash it all out, oh scrape away some flesh and stitch me back up and pack the wounds. How long were you under that time for? Um, oh no, that's like the duration of the procedure. Oh, okay. But again, you know, which was probably uh, well, it was the best part of a day, I think, because Karen was like kind of sat upstairs the, the whole time. Uh, but for me, yeah, I kind of went in another place for. I can't perceive of time in that because it was a real world, real weird, real weird experience. Was it anaesthetic that gave you that? Put you under that time. Well, no, because generally, if you, if you, have, you, have you ever read an operation? No. Right, okay. Well, if you have an operation, basically you lie and then go five, or say count back from ten. I've been put under. Yeah, so ten, yeah. nine, eight, so, and you go out, and then you open your eyes and you're in recovery. No, not for me. Right. Not for me. It, I, I had that, you know, countdown from ten, and then eyes closed, and then I 
I was in oblivion and I, I felt like um, I was just in another universe. Um, it's very... I, I, what were you saying? Nothing. I Jeez. felt nothing. I was just an entity and I thought, this is oblivion and there is nothing. I, I you know, one of the chats in the book when I, I talk about it, I, I kind of... I managed to put it in words, um, but you know, for brevity, just understand that it was. I had no consciousness of myself. I wasn't Aaron. I was just an entity in oblivion, staring into oblivion, and I thought that this was it forever. And I had no concept of time, so I don't know how long that lasted. It felt. I don't know. It was just impossible to understand. Um, that one. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing what the brain can do. Yeah. I mean, anybody, I think, you know, allegedly, who's done hallucinogens, who's done psychedelics, um, has an idea of, of kind of what the mind is able to do, either positively or negatively. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was an, an, you know, certainly an experience. Mm. Have you ever felt anything as di- disconnected or dis- disassociated, if you, if you like, or otherworldly since those experiences in any other way? Like me- you talk about meditation, um, and anything else you've been put, have you had the operation since? I think it comes close in terms of how different it was to reality. Oh, well, or to the uh, physical reality, I should say. I had a very minor operation when I was put out. Um a couple of years ago and before I was thinking, oh, because I didn't think I was going to be given a general. I thought I was just going to be getting a local. Um, and when they said I was going to general, I thought, holy crap. And I didn't. I had that, you know, countdown to seven and then I woke up in recovery. Nothing. Um, I, I, don't know, I suppose meditation uh, gives me a more positive experience of um, getting away from self than um than than anything else but nothing to you know to that extent by any stretch of the imagination have you, have you had much discussions with i know you're talking about doing where you are doing other but have you had much discussions with other people who've experienced indented care psychosis yeah 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 a lot what what are those discussions being like um so varied so really? so varied um and a lot of the time i think it, it was kind of just I think because the, the the medical establishment doesn't really understand it and certainly doesn't deal with it well. Uh, so a couple of examples. Um, there was um, a woman I was chatting to online um, and she was in, I'm not going to mention it for possibly legal reasons, but she was in a big teaching hospital in America in a major city. Think major city in America. She was in one of the top teaching hospitals there. And when she came out of the coma, she was saying, I saw this and this is what happened. You know, so it would be me saying, oh, I saw my brother's been there and this and I was in Bos- Belfast and Bosnia and yada, yada, yada. The nurse said to her, I think you're possessed by the devil. You should pray for forgiveness. This is somebody who's just come out of a coma, been told you're possessed by the devil. You need to pray. That's fucking real. Yeah. So that's one experience. And then I've had everything in between people who've had good therapy, bad therapy. I'm, you know, I'm in contact with support groups. Um, 
I think the 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 theme that I've kind of come to recognize is that few people completely get over it, and that's one thing that I won't say it troubles me; it more baffles me in that this happened to me, and I appear to have, apart from you know, I would say things that's improved about me and made me better, a, a better person. Um, I don't, you know, and I'll never forget it, but it, 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 I don't have, I'm, I don't have any negative repercussions of it. I think the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Um, and I, I, there's a lot of people who still really struggle and still really suffer. But I mean, I was fast tracked to therapy, and I had the most amazing therapist. Um, but the therapist had experience of someone who'd fallen victim to this before, or not? No, but he did have experience of dealing with military. So it it, it did. Um, he was really good with PTSD, um, which essentially is what this is. And I do have a bit of history of that as well. Um, I've been treated for PTSD in the past, so um, he, he he was. We were on the same page in that. Um, and his treatment's amazing. And because I'm a veteran, I was fast tracked. Whereas I know people, and I know of people who've waited months and months and months before they've had any sort of help. And then the help that they've had has been wildly varied from really good to, frankly, making um, the, making it worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, you say you, you don't have any negative experience from it. I don't know. I disagree. When there's things that you can't. You, you can't talk about. You won't talk about. You can't bring yourself to be comfortable talking about. They can't. That cannot be positive. <laughs> um. Well, it, it's not like. Uh, okay, so I mean, things that you're experiencing. Let, we'll use the military because it, it, it's a, a good example. So the things that you see and do or don't do in the military, you know, and you you take that experience away, and kind of the the, the damage that you'll experience psychologically is when you take that experience, you don't talk about it, and you kind of squash it down. Because who knew that taking, you know, emotions um, and squashing them right down inside your body and pretending that they never happened and forgetting about them forever um, is not a good thing. Who knew? Um, well, apparently everyone nowadays in the modern like that. It's not that I'm doing that with them. It's just that I've kind of dealt with them myself. Oh, okay. So, and yeah, I just yeah, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see the, the utility in... Um, I, I yeah, didn't I so it, certainly. I, I, I didn't want the book to be that. That's not the book I wanted to write. You it's know, it, it's graphic enough and it's horrific enough without me putting these kind of things in that you know. I don't want it to be a, a book that you know gives people nightmares. Yeah. And I, I and I've dealt with them. I've emotionally compartmentalized, compartmentalized, compartmentalized them. Compartmentalized them um, and I've dealt with them myself. It's not like they're not being dealt with. I have. I just don't see the utility in exposing my my family and my loved ones to to it. Yeah, and certainly if they're in a book, because some of them involve my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that would be a you know I I don't see the value in yeah. that. First of all, for their experience, no, yeah, yeah, for yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah no, it makes I, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so how is is it this, is the second book you're gonna other experiences of other people yeah i've started it and that there's been a big kind of stall because i'm working on other projects um so originally uh the, the follow-up book what i wanted it to be is like kind of so there's my experience from point a to point z 
of going through, you know, the the cut on my hand, the A and E inexperience, the bin induced, the uh, experience that I had while I was in the operating theater, the coming through the different experiences while I was in a coma, the experience of being brought round um, and forced to breathe for myself, and the recovery period, da, 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 and all that. That was my journey from A to Z. What I wanted to write is other people's journeys. So a couple of different person people's experience of, you know, immediately before what took them into that environment, a couple of people's experience of being sedated and been in the operating theater, whether they see the white light and et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is, because we're all different and we all have different experiences. And um, through the journey, I wanted to use other people's stories. Um, and I started off with that. And um, I'm in contact with um, um, a a, a, quite a senior um she's called kelly deaton and she's an intensive care specialist in america um and she's kind of cited my experience and used a video as mine as a talking head at conferences and things like that and talks that she does for um for intensive care work over in america and um she's kind of getting involved as a um like she's putting some input into it you know, so it will be other people's when I get around finishing it, it will be other people's experiences, but there'll also be a this is why the experience this is why this is what's happening to that person medically, and this is why they're experiencing that. So, you know, the, the, the drugs that they're given, you know, the uh, explanation because my book reads more like a um, I won't use the word novel because it's 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 facts, but it, you know, it, it's um. It's quite light on medicalization. I don't go into any kind of medical detail, really. If you want to know somebody's experience of being in a coma, that's the book for you. But if And if you want to understand the experience, it's the book for you. If you like a good story, it's the book for you. What? But if you want a medical explanation of a coma, you're not going to get it. Why did, you call, why did you call that book Never Really Over? Oh, that's the thing, you see. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read the book to find out. <laughs> okay okay i am gonna read the book i like i said yeah it, normally for the most part i'll i'll if i know someone's going on as an author i'll read at yeah. least one of the things they've done but in this case i didn't want to do it i i, I didn't want to know about the experiences before we chatted about it i think it's worth it. if i don't you know um if it's only used to you uh i think it's really, i'm gonna really read it oh for sure gonna read oh no no i mean i think it's really worked uh worked well because um a lot of the times, you know, I've, I've done a number of podcasts and a lot of times they have read it and they, they really understand it. And the the, the, the conversation has gone in a very different direction because, it, you know, they, they, you know, they, they understand certain parts of it. So I think it's, it's, it's probably, um, I think it's made for a, a richer conversation. The fact that you hadn't than if you, if you had have done. Good. I'm glad, glad, glad it's, glad it's uh, working out for you so far. Yeah. <laughs> what a, <laughs> So how co how I mean, how common is it, like per capita, for people to experience uh, intensive care psychosis? Do you know? Do you have any yeah. figures for it? Yeah. So anything between sort of sixty and eighty percent of people who are put in a, a medically induced coma, huge. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sixty to eighty percent will will experience some level of intensive care. So, uh, and yet you don't. Really well, it's the it. delirium that are actually experienced at the time. The psychosis kind of. We won't get to the, the minutiae between the, the two, but we'll have similar experiences. Mm. Um, yeah. So if it's that high, why is it so not well understood then? 
But you um, five, because five years ago, I think and and you're saying that it was it took a junior doctor I, to think about it. To put junior nurse. Junior nurse. Junior nurse. Yeah. Nurse, yeah. Doctor, yeah. Junior nurse. Yeah. I well, I used to, like when I left my first degree was physiotherapy and I worked on intensive care units and I'd never heard of it. No one. It's it's uh, and I think uh, part of the problem is um, because everybody's experience is so different. You know, they can't look for, right, these are the signs, these are the symptoms. It's very difficult for them to do that because we, we're we all so individual. And I think rather than trying to, to connect the dots in terms of, um, instead of looking and saying, all right, everyone's so different, they should just look at the similarities. And the similarities are the, you know, the uh, delusions, the hallucinations um, and, um, um, yeah, that's kind of the... Uh, the emotional trauma, because they and the and the reason why they need to understand it, I think, is because a it will make them much more sympathetic when you come out of your coma and you're not being a terribly helpful person. Because I could have been, you know, I know I was a bit of a pain in the ass when I was put on the medical ward, um, but you know, you've got to understand that I was fearing for my life literally, so I probably wasn't a great person to have the nurse. Um, why did you think they wanted to do experiments on you? Because my 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 brain was still struggling to. to understand the world that you just come from yeah oh, the, oh that you're in oh okay. yeah 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 okay. yeah i mean it, it for you know lots of other things as well that were really troubling that you know um anything from you know the more or they don't give a shit if you live or die or and stuff like that you know so it wasn't you know the whole time you know that that, that those kind of emotions were kind of waxed and waned they weren't with me you know the whole time um but then there's the afterwards people who've who've had this experience and and people you know generally who who were put in a medical journey and don't have those kind of experience will suffer experiences afterwards in you know that are more medically diagnosable you know exhaustion memory problems uh, coordination um you know there's a whole raft of of uh, problems that people who have had this experience will have which are more medical I mean, they may have a psychological um, um, root as their experience. Two weird things, though. I have to mention this that's happened to me. Um, when I came out of the coma, I, I, my, I've always had 2020 vision. Perfect. Came out of the coma, anything between my hand and my face. I can't even send a text without glasses. Yeah. And they put that down to um, the oxygen's kind of forced into your body. You know, the pressure of the oxygen when you've been uh, ventilated. But the weirdest one is I've lost the ability to spell out loud, right? What? Right. So if you say to me, you know, write uh, never really over, I could write it down on a piece of paper, not a problem, right? But then if you to ask me to spell it out loud, cannot do it. I cannot spell out loud. I have to really concentrate to spell my own name out loud. Wow. Yeah, I can't spell out loud. It's the that weird, is weirdest crazy, thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I've heard, you know, various things from different people who had the ex- experience. Uh, there's, there's some real commonalities, um, exhaustion. Um, I mean, some people, you know, never return to work again because imagine. they're so physically frail and emotionally traumatized. You know, I've had everything from, you know, people suffering from depression to cannot leave the house to suicides. Imagine. I mean, I, and especially with the the hallucinations and things, I can imagine how people who would uh, people who would maybe have a little bit less resilience in certain aspects could experience a hallucination of something 
family member, non-family member, like, but a a visual. I mean, you described like describing that the, about your brothers. I can imagine how other people who experience that could never get over that. Yeah, it's so horrific for them to, yeah. you know, just popping into their brain every so often and thinking about it years down the line. But such horrific because it is a horrific, a horrific vision, a horrific scene that you're describing mm. that you absolutely lived. That yeah. people, because you know as well as I do, it's like you talk about PTSD and people people deal with trauma in different ways and some people can experience it a, a huge amount of things that would be extremely traumatic to others but they just brush it off the shoulder and they like look at how many how many people you went and served with you know um in the past you mentioned you've you know had treatment for ptsd before and and there are other people who have ptsd and they've been on the same missions operations being in the same exact situation maybe 30 people maybe 10 people maybe five people one or two of them come with ptsd most of the others won't it's just i'm just highlighting Mm. that people deal with things in different ways so i can see how someone going through what you went through they ain't coming out the other side they're never going back to work they're never leaving the house because they're traumatized for life and no amount of therapy is going to get 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 over it because their brain just not built to deal with it yeah, built to deal with it, and it's just the way it is. Unfortunately, unfortunately yeah, fucking horrific, man. No, I, I don't know. I don't know whether, um, whether my, I mean, I, I know there were certainly some things, and I talk about it in the book, like kind of the weirdest things that that I think I found that helped me, and it was you know the routine that I, you know, the time I'd spent in OPs, and the routine of it, you know, the you know you. Um, you know, for for those listeners who are not military, and don't know what an OP is. An OP is an observation post. So you you would be spying, you would be surveilling the target at the front end. Um, you're there with your optics and your listening devices, and then you would move into an admin position where you know you were cleaning weapons or whatever it was, um, food in, the yeah. Shop. And then you go to that position where you was you know back cover, so you'd be lying there with the GPMG. Um, covering, you know, if you were attacked from the, the, uh, the rear, and then you move into a sleeping position, and then you would go back, and that kind of routine um, was I, I, I just felt that that being able to cope with the intensive care routine of kind of lying there, medication, washing, it, 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 it that I just felt got a sense that that prepared me for that bizarrely. And there's other things, you know, the, my mental resilience, uh, my ability to deal with hardship. Now, I don't know because I can't, I, there's no control group, that whether the fact that I'd been in the army um, meant that I could deal with it better or whether the type of person that I was that joined the army and did the stuff that I did, because there's no control group, so it, it's a, an unanswerable question. You know which is right. You know whether it, it, I would have been able to cope with it anyway, or whether the experiences that I that we shared, you know, would have um, would have meant that I could have dealt with it. I don't. I don't know. Is um, is the answer to that? Mm. So going back to the routine, that's interesting. So in the hospital, you had the the real world, the physical. Real, I don't want to say the real world because in your mind it was equally as real. Yeah. The physical real world going around you, the routine of in the morning, whatever one in the morning, like cleaning, antibiotics, medication getting redone. There were certain things that were bang, bang, bang through the day and through the night. And and but even though it was craziness in your mind, so you think that that familiarity of routine 
that was something you could cling to as I recognize this. I would There's something normal there, and that linked back to your routine with the military the OP, for the OP, for example. I'm 100% convinced. Really? I'm 100% convinced because my mind kept, and it wasn't. It wasn't just the kind of flashbacks that I was having having to that. It was just the routine felt almost comforting to me. I can deal with routine, you know. Um, it was something that I'm familiar with in a world of total... You imagine, okay, you strip every single facet of you of a human being away. You know, your emotions, your experiences, your likes, your dislikes, your prejudices, everything. You take that away and you drop you into a new world in a new reality that is absolutely 100% real to you and you know no different. Okay? But having something in the background that you know that you that you've got and I, I and I wasn't at the time thinking oh shit this is just like being a Royal OP in South Armagh it wasn't like that it's just the routine I just had an intrinsic feel I've done this before routine I'm good at it's hard it's and for those who don't know I've been in a Royal OP for three weeks at a time it's fucking hard you know pissing in bottles and shitting in cling film bags and you know, eating cold food for and lying in mud for, for three weeks at a time and all that is, is a hard routine. And that's what we call it. And, constant, we hard, and constantly under threat. Yeah, we call that hard routine. And the hard routine that the intensive care environment was felt familiar. I've done hard wow. routine before. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. A routine... Uh, but- I mean, in a different way, like routine is something that most people take for granted, but it's such an essential part of getting through life. You, take, you strip away people's routine, they don't know where they are. Mm. But most people don't even don't even think about it, you know? Obviously, that's a different type of thing, but yeah. Goodness me. Goodness me. What's, uh, so what's the plan for the second book? How far, how far progressed is that? Uh, I'm probably about a third into it, but um, other projects that I'm working on at the minute have kind of superseded in it, you know, that I know are going to kind of... Um, that needed to get finished first. I'm, I'm wanting, um, we're going to um, Scotland next month, um, and I'm hoping to get uh, spend a couple of days. We've got, you know, my my cousin's got a little place up on the coast. She's very kindly let us go and stay up there. So I'm hoping um, I can d- at least uh, thrash out some ideas. Um, but I'm hoping to have something like um, that's ready to start looking at getting edited by the end of the year. Okay, pretty quick. Yeah, well, I've I've been at it a couple of years. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's not. not yeah, that's kind of thrown out. But uh, it's um, yeah, it it takes its time. Well, you know yourself. Yeah, and that's the second book. Mm. So, but you mentioned the third. What's the third? Oh, that's completely different. Go on. <laughs> um, I want to write a kind of a um, um, kind of a, a his, history of military slang through the years. <laughs> and I know military slang's been done before, but I want to do it through different, uh, like from the Romans, what they the words that oh, they would use. Okay. So a little bit about the different ca- campaigns, not a military history book by any stretch of imagination, but where you know these these words came from, um, you know. So the different uh, campaigns, you know. So, so you know, what would a ro- let's use the word, you know, enemy. 
Okay, you know, what Romans would have, have used to, for the different enemies that they had, what, you know, the Napoleonic British soldiers would call the French, what the French would call the British, you know, um, you know, the Falklands, um, you know, my, you know, Northern Ireland, all the way through, um, through, and then the different services. Um, I've and got a book up there called Jack Speak, which a, a, a good friend gave to me, Gav Chuak gave to me, full of, full of uh, sailor, Sailor Slack. Yeah. My God. They're on a different fucking planet that lot. Yeah, yeah. Planet, yeah. I've yeah, I've got uh, a lot of mates who are Romans and it, it's quite you know, um it's quite interesting when you, you, you speak to people from different units and the similarities that if you were a civilian and you were to listen, you wouldn't get the nuance. But you know, I'm guards and you were paras, right? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of similarities that we would use, but then there's words which I could pick out that were different. And then, like, when I was in the Culture and Guards, I was 2nd Battalion. And there's some words that we would use that the 1st Battalion wouldn't, and vice versa. And, you know, um, so if, if anyone's out there, you know, Remembrance Sunday is, is closing on us fast. So if anyone out there is planning on going to Remembrance Sunday and pretending to be ex-military, Please don't, because within 30 seconds of you opening your mouth, we know you're a fucking Walter. We know you're bullshitting. Within 30 seconds of you speaking, because you're going to say a word that would be that would be incongruent with the unit you said that you were in. And we're going to look at it and we're like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on, hang on. Well, listen, mate, it's been an absolute... Uh... No, thanks for... It's been a pleasure. It's been... Most of it, I've I have enjoyed the conversation. I I really enjoy um, listening to to people's experiences of the human mm. experience, especially yeah, when it's in you. your own mind, and especially when it's so different, so rare compared to other people have experienced. Because it does, I think, it, I think stories like yours and your and your interpretation of what happened to you and how you deal with that. Yeah, you know how you reconcile it, how you understand it, and how you apply it in a, in, in you know in, to your life now. They help inform other people to to improve. I think I, I, that's what I believe. Anyway, I think no, no, absolutely. I mean, I you know I listen, um, you know, to a lot of podcasts, and you know they have guests on who you know their politics could be diametrically opposed to mine, but you know you always learn something, and I think you you know that um, you know exposing yourself. And because it, it's so easy to fall into an echo chamber now, so listening to something a bit diverse. Um, but yeah, uh, never really over. Available on Amazon. Um, Is there an audiobook? Uh, no, I'm working on. It, but I'm, one of my best mates, Joe, um, Joe Marshall. Um, he will be listening to this. He started doing the uh, the prologue, and he's because he, I'm I'm really. I said to you before we start, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm not really uncomfortable about my voice, but I don't think it sounds great on uh, when recorded and played back. It's slightly nasally and a little bit camp, I think. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <fine> me. <laughs> Joe has got a really rich but northern uh, voice, and he's done some uh, voiceover work for adverts that I've got. You know, he's done for me in the past, um, and he did the, the the prologue, and it was just amazing. It's just that he's so busy on other projects because he's a bit of a creative, and oh, you know, just drives you mad. He's so musician, he's so talented, it makes you sick. But yeah, trying to get him to pin him down to listen. To uh, to get it done is impossible, um, so it will be eventually. So yeah, never really over. Uh, Aaron Welsh available on Amazon. If anyone wants to reach out to me, um, I am on Instagram, and it's active Aaron, active Aaron, all one word. I'd love to uh, get some feedback uh, from the book. 
if anyone reads it and also if you've had similar experiences it would be amazing if you could um you know you, um reach out to me um but um one person left a review for the book and said, Karen is the real hero of this story. That pissed me off a little bit. <laughs> she was an absolute hero, but the hero of the story, I'm, I'm not having that. Really, come on. It's been an absolute pleasure um, coming up and speaking to you, man. It's been I'll great. connect you up with Paul Cotella, who was the other guy I mentioned at the start. Yeah, would you? Are That'd you be on, fantastic. You're on, you're on Instagram, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah active active Aaron. Aaron. I'll connect yeah. you up with him. Um, and, uh, and good luck, buddy. And I'm looking forward to reading the book, for sure. Fantastic. And if you change your mind about recording it yourself, you're welcome to use the studio to do it. That, I, yeah, let's chat about that. So Liz, Liz McConaughey, she's just done her book. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, book. yeah. Because yeah. part of the problem, I think, why my voice sounds so nasally and campy is because I'm doing, you know, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't have the recording voice. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with your voice. Nothing and there's nothing wrong with being camp, by the way. It's just, uh, it, 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 yeah. it, it doesn't play well. It doesn't play well with, with some of the things I'm describing. <laughs> you know, when I'm, I'm talking about sniper selection. <laughs> Um, and you know, me and my mate Polly being dragged across the hills. It's you know, it's uh, my Nesley voice didn't really work, work well. Cool. Cheers for your time, buddy. Thanks very much. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H Hour patron? H Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the H-Hour patrons. So before this podcast was recorded, I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes and you also get other perks and bonuses all of the information is on charliecharlie1.com just hit the menu item become a patron it'll show you everything there including access to the hr discord community and private patron only channels on there so go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item become a patron easy peasy thank you for being a supporter subscribe to the channel and i will catch you on the next episode thank you